is done by the church after God's vision. So essentially, Jesus has this vision uh, that he set from the beginning of time to the end of time, that at the end of time, there will be every tribe and tongue and nation that's going to stand before the throne of God, worshiping him for all eternity. That's the vision of what God has for the church in the future. And because of that, the mission of the church is then to expand into new different territories, and then we're supposed to multiply. And how we said it last week was this. We want to multiply disciples that turn into communities and that turn into churches. And so we're picking up where we left off last week. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, near the end. Um, but another piece of this vision that we have to talk about is this idea of interdependent community. Now, you and I uh, both know that the, the crucial term in that phrase was the term interdependent. That's the word that really makes up what the community of God is supposed to be. Uh, interdependent relationships is what exists inside the church. But unfortunately, you and I probably know the aversions of interdependent community because we can either fall into one of two categories. The first is this, independence, where I mean, we, we, we are a nation that's founded upon independence. We have a culture that values independence. But when an independent person comes into the church, there can be some problems that exist. Why? Because it's about the church community and not about one person. What that can happen is that if you're an independent person, supposedly in an interdependent community, you're going to isolate yourself. Uh, there's going to be a lack of humility on your part to need other people. There probably also is a lack of trust that could be there, maybe a disregard for the giftings or talents of others because you're independent. I mean, you and I both know that if you have a boss like this, it sucks. You want a boss who's a team member who leads you well. If this boss is an independent identity from you, it's hard to actually maintain the vision of what the business is supposed to be about. But the second aversion is also called codependence. You and I probably existed in this in high school, right? In our romantic relationships where, at least in my day, we had text messaging. I don't know about you guys. Were there letters or what did you guys communicate with? I don't know. I don't know if I could say that. It's okay. It's a low blow. I love you. It's fine. It's good. We'll move forward. But um, it's, it's like the insecure guy who can't have a relationship without saying I love you at the end of every sentence or the girl who gets a text message and doesn't get a response and has to keep responding back again. Are you there? Are you there? Are you there? This type of unhealth can create an over-dependence upon the community and so much so that there, there is this clinginess that's available, and it's not supposed to be that way in the kingdom of God, which is why we call it interdependent community. That's the third option, and this option looks like this. Individuals take responsibility for themselves, but they also take responsibility for the needs of others. So they know how to be healthily independent and healthily dependent upon God's church, the idea of interdependent community. So the text we're in today is going to demonstrate that type of interdependency, and then you and I have some options on how we are to respond to a text like this. So Acts 2 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 42, and it reads this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together 
and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as we pick up on the tales of last week's message, where we talked about the reality of multiplication and expansion, this comes at the end of chapter 2. Now, Acts chapter 2 is a big deal for the church's narrative from day one. Acts chapter 2 is where the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes. And because of that, the Holy Spirit now lives inside of a human being. The first time in human history where the Holy Spirit lives inside of a human being. We've seen all throughout the Gospel of Luke, as we've been in that series before, where the Holy Spirit has come to rest upon people. The term is anoint people for ministry, whether you're a king or a prophet, etc. When that happens, when the Holy Spirit shows up, this is a new reality for the church. And because of that, 3,000 people get saved. That's a good day if you're a preacher like Peter. You say some words, 3,000 people get saved. This is a description of that group. And this is one of the first examples in Scripture that we get to see the DNA of the church, where we get to see how they operated and why they operated. At the same exact time, I want to put a caveat out there, okay? Oftentimes in the church, we say, we just got to be like the early church. We look at the early church's highlights and say we want to be like them, but we don't look at the early church's failures and say, yes, we want to be like them too. So just for clarity's sake, the early church was the early church just as broken, just as real of a church that we are in. But the beautiful thing is that you see the Holy Spirit in the lives of people and something that we get to emulate. So what we're going to see this morning is four things. We're going to talk about their devotion, their awe, their unity, and their joy. But first, we're going to look at their devotion. So these believers gathered together, and they gathered together around the apostles' teaching. Now, for us, that's considered the Tanakh. We had talked a few weeks back where during the transfiguration of Jesus, Jesus stands between Moses and Elijah, and it's the symbol of the Jewish book, the Tanakh, what we would call the Jewish Old Testament, where you have Moses, who's responsible for the Torah, you have Elijah, who, res- who is responsible for the prophets, and then you have Jesus being the central figure throughout the entire Old Testament, saying, hey, all of this is about me. Now, if you're a Jew at that time, that's your holy book. And in the midst of that, you're also in an orally translated culture. So how do you pass down information? There, you don't necessarily write it down because it's incredibly expensive to do so. So you pass down traditions orally. You tell the story of what God is doing. And so for these people, they came and they gathered around the teachings of Jesus. And how that happened was a very specific way. They gathered around the apostles because why? We've talked about the apostles had firsthand experience, right? If you witness a car accident, the police will come to you and say, hey, I want to get your testimony. Why? Because you had firsthand experience. That's valued in their culture as well as in ours. So when Jesus gathers his apostles, teaches them for three years, everybody decides, say, you know what? We got to sit at the apostles' feet and hear what God has to say. I'm sure they would go back to the Old Testament again and again, just like Jesus was walking his disciples down the road to Emmaus and pointing back to everything in the Old Testament that was focused on him again and again. And then probably the Sermon on the Mount. Those were the two things that the apostles were looking at and proclaiming again them saying, guys, we have to value this teaching. 
If this teaching isn't central, then we're going to drift, right? If the mission doesn't stay the same, we're going to drift. So what does the first church do? They gather around what Jesus said and taught, and they're devoted in that way. Second, they're devoted to fellowship, as we see in the text. And this is more than just getting together. I don't know about you guys, but if you had a church background like me growing up, I wasn't a Christian until I was 14, but I grew up going to the Methodist church, and they have this thing called the Fellowship Hall. The Fellowship Hall is where you'd go, and you'd have you know, great potlucks, and I loved it. It was free food. I enjoyed it a lot. It was a lot of fun. But you'd go there, and you'd have time to gather with God's people. But what can happen is that we can take a word like fellowship and apply our own 21st century understanding to that when Luke is specifically writing fellowship in a unique way. Fellowship has a much bigger picture than just hanging out with Christians. Really, the idea of fellowship is partnership. That's a full understanding of fellowship. Paul says this in Philippians 1. It says this, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, the Philippian church, Always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with you. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So as Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, he's saying, guys, we are partnered together in the mission of God. And what was the mission? Multiplication and expansion of the church. That's why we're sitting here in Sherwood, Oregon, thousands of years later. Because people were faithful to multiply and expand. And so you actually know this reality of fellowship to be true. You've probably felt it on a sports team. In your marriage, you should feel this sense of fellowship that you are partnering together for a particular vision. If you're a soldier, I've heard soldiers again and again say that they've never felt more in partnership or fellowship with people than when they're on the battlefield together because they're on a mission going in the same direction. So the disciples were devoted to the apostles' teachings, which reminded them about Jesus being multiplying and expanding his kingdom, bringing them to a place of now understanding true fellowship. They also devoted themselves to one particular meal. I would, I would, if I were to devote myself to a meal, it would be breakfast at Cracker Barrel. That's where I would go to devote myself for a meal. But these guys had a better deal. And they said, we're going to devote ourselves around the Lord's Supper. So they're remembering what Jesus had taught them when he sat down with his 12 apostles at that point in time and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then this is my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Dip this, dip this in and remember me. This is what you're supposed to remember, the bread and the cup. So when they gathered for meals, they took communion often and regularly. And as Christians, that's something that we've got to do. As we sit down to a meal, a dinner, a lunch, whatever, grab whatever you have and remember the broken body and blood of Jesus. Why? Because it unifies you back onto mission. Always it brings it back to the reality that there is victory, that God has overcome the grave. And because of that, when we take of communion, we're reminded that Jesus died and rose again so that we might have new life through the Spirit. And then finally, they were devoted to prayer. Now, for me, I'm a natural extrovert. So for me, prayer has always been a struggle in my life. But I look at this, and, and, and as I try to put my head in the space of the apostles, Jesus levitated. He's gone. He's in the heavens. See you later. 
He sent the Spirit. And how do they need to stay connected to God? Through prayer. So they devoted themselves to this. I mean, after 3,000 people being saved in a day, I feel like they would be even more devoted to prayer. This miraculous thing that God is doing, God is bringing this home. And so with all of these devotions, the disciples lived this life of interdependent community. And here's what happened as a result. They had great awe. The Greek word there is the word for phobos, where we get the idea of fear from. So this is where we take a word like awesome, and California surfers use it all the time to describe the wave they just killed. But the reality is, is awesome is meant to be full of awe. You are full of fear. And for the apostles, this is what they had. They just saw 3,000 people meet Jesus in a moment. That's a good day, as I've said before. That's a big day. And so in that moment, there's this awe. God, what are you doing? It's a recognition of him entering into their natural reality in a supernatural way. And what Luke continues to emphasize is their unity. You see, this is what's fascinating about this type of unity that you see in the early church. It's probably one that, if I'm honest, you and I are probably uncomfortable with. And the reason why is that it confronts their cultural understanding of unity as well as ours today. You know, for us, I think for many people, you feel most unified with those who are in your family. Now, granted, we all have dysfunctional families in every way, shape, or form. So some may be more than others. Welcome to the church. This is kind of a dysfunctional family, too, so you're welcome. But in the midst of it, most people feel connected, unified with their family members. The same thing back then. They, what mattered most was who your mommy and your daddy was. Because if you had a healthy bloodline, that's what gave you status, as we've seen all throughout the Gospel of Luke. So bloodline and heritage is what matters. But then all of a sudden, you're born again into a family called the church. Where Jesus, as we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, what does he do? He takes their cultural understanding of family and flips it on its head by saying this. Jesus, your mothers and brothers are here to see you. And he goes, no, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the will of God and do it. So being a part of this new family trumps bloodlines, trumps anything, which means you and I actually have a deeper family than our bloodline. We're a part of a family that goes across centuries, um, of in, in all the way back in history and moving forward into the future. All across this globe, we are a part of the church, the one true family of God. And because they were united, what happened for them is it led to this, this generosity. So here's what they did. They didn't consider their stuff their stuff, their land their land, etc. They saw all the resources that God would provide the community as a provision for the community. How many of you, if I said, hey, would you swap wallets with me, actually would? Maybe few of you. If you saw how much little debt I have, woohoo, praise the Lord, none there. But if we, maybe you want to trade that, I don't know. But here's the reality. If I said, hey, take my wallet and I take yours, are you comfortable with that? The early church was comfortable with that. Because what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. That's the, the, the reality that gets us uncomfortable, where it's like, no, I've worked for this. This is my stuff. This is my stuff. Actually, it's not. It's God's that he's entrusted to the church. And so for them, this unity fostered into this amazing generosity. So for those who had a lot, looked at those who had less and said, yes, let me, let me level the playing field here. 
Because this is supposed to be a picture of what God is going to do in the end of time, right? The church is constantly supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus who show up and say, this is what God looks like. And what happens in God's community? Those who are needy have their needs met. And those who have been given a lot by God have been called to be generous with what they have for the sake of others. And this type of unity that comes is only fostered based upon interdependent community. Based upon healthy people coming in and saying, yes, I'm going to give of myself and care for another. And that that person would then say the same exact thing. That I'm going to give of myself and care for another. Maybe you've experienced some sort of this radical generosity before. I can remember down in Southern California where uh, Nadia and I were a part of Cornerstone Church down there. And uh, there was a uh, 10% pay cut that the entire staff took down there because of just the lack of giving. We had probably five full-time pastors at the time. Uh, I was one of them. And so Nadia and I had already talked about this. We were committed to having her stay at home to be a mom and be present and raise the kids. And so I said, I'm going to go get a second job at Starbucks just to take care of what we need to take care of. Not knowing that the entire time our life group has been talking behind our backs. This is the best kind of talking behind your backs when you're trying to take care of somebody. They're talking behind our backs, and they go to each member of the community group, maybe you know, 10 to 12 people, and we show up to a community group, and they, they, they gather all of us in a circle, which first Nadia and I just felt kind of awkward, where it's like, you, we don't normally come to community group, and we're all in a circle now, okay, so what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, they literally hand us a bag of $900, and we were just in shock, because this was really one of the first times that we had received that type of care. Oftentimes, as a pastor, uh, the responsibility of a pastor is to train up the saints for the work of ministry. So oftentimes I feel like in my life and in Nadia's life, our job is to be here for you. But there was a moment in time where the church was there for us, and it was a beautiful thing. Because what does it demonstrate? It demonstrates the reality that, that no, it's not communism, it's the church. <laughs> it's us coming together, individuals choosing, not by the forcing of a government or the forcing of a of some sort of deity, but by the generosity that Christ himself has given to us in himself, he then takes that through the church and gives through monetary means at times. And man, we were just stunned and amazed. It gave us like a two-month cushion for us to really take care of our family until the giving went up and our salary was reinstated. And so we just, we, we saw the church take care of us and it was such a gift. But I'm sure you've experienced that too. Have you been a part of the church where just people are coming alongside you and helping you move and helping you care? Like, that's the reality of the church. And here's the cool part. The interdependent church was glad. They were a happy people. They were so joyful. Why? Because they saw God at work. They, were, they came together in the temple and, and for their formal gatherings, maybe like a Sunday morning like this. They were in each other's homes. They had these informal gatherings, and maybe not just on the night of a community group, but they were actually in each other's homes often and frequently. They ate their food with glad and generous hearts and praising God because what God had formed them into was a community that was interdependent upon each other. And here's what's incredible. God uses the very interdependent community that he creates to advance his mission. That's the result in the text. You see 
God forming these bunch of people. And at the very end, you have this beautiful English word called and. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Because of what was going on beforehand, it it takes this conjunction word and brings it together and says, because of the faithfulness of God's people, God was faithful to them by adding to their number. It's fascinating. But what's even cooler about the book of Acts is that this isn't the first time that you see something like this happen. Just two chapters later, we get another glimpse into what this interdependent community looks like. So we're going to be in Acts 4, verses 32, if you want to follow along in your Bible, or it'll be on the screen up here. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here's what's fascinating about this section. If you can just jump from Acts 2 to Acts 4, you see a very similar picture. But if we jump from Acts 2 to Acts 4, we forget what happens in between the arc of the story to help us understand why they actually went back to this form of community again. So Acts chapter 3 Peter is preaching with John in the temple, and they heal a man who's been born blind. And they say, I have nothing to give you except in the name of Jesus, be healed. He stands up, and he just starts proclaiming the goodness of God. The religious leaders show up and actually start looking at the apostles and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing in the midst of this? So as a result, they get jailed in chapter 4. But then a wise man named Gamaliel shows up, and he says, guys, if these are, if these are a part of Jesus' crew, you've got to let them go. It's going to be more harmful if you keep him here. And so as a result of some of that trial, this is what comes. So Peter and John get let out of prison, a challenge, so to speak, in the mission of God. And then they're let out of prison and brought back to this reality. What do they do? They pray for boldness right before this chapter that they would continue in the work of God. And then what do they do? They gather again for interdependent community. They're selling their estates, for goodness sake. I mean, this moves beyond just your bank account. Let me just take care of you with your land and whatever. It's a fascinating reality. So this interdependent community is demonstrated again, even though there are challenges that come to the community of faith. Sometimes God throws curveballs that communities of faith are not expecting. And because of that, what do they have to do again Remain interdependent in spite of the challenges or the curveballs that come. So for us today, I think this is what we have to consider. An application for us as our church is this. Colossae Sherwood must live as an interdependent community because displaying the gospel of Christ depends upon it. This is the vision of Colossae Church as a whole, as we've talked before. Colossae Sherwood is a congregation of Colossae Church, Hillsborough, Tigard, Sherwood, and the goal is to multiply and expand all throughout the west side cities of Portland. 
Because the goal is that we're better together than we are separate. Even when challenges come, we're greater together than separate. And so there's a particular challenge that I know that you guys are all aware of that I want to bring to your attention today. A couple weeks ago, um, we had Nadia come up here and Tony Barber, one of our elders, prayed over her health. Um, She was just diagnosed with fibromyalgia and uh, she has had a pretty rough eight months. We've been leading Colossae Sherwood since August of last year and then in September of last year, she started to decline pretty quickly. Um, It's affected her body in lots of crazy ways, lots of pain throughout her joints and muscles. There's days where she can't get out of bed sleepless nights, pain constantly revolving around the body where it's not just sticking in one spot. So over these last eight months, we've gone to see a number of different doctors, and uh, it's just unfortunately gotten worse and worse. Um, with this fibro diagnosis, there, there's some steps that we need to take as a family for us to take care of each other. And so um, with fibro, it's something that you're going to have for the rest of your life, but doctors have given some good prognosis of what that would look like. And really, in order for Nadia to truly flourish, there's going to be some transitions that we've got to talk about with you guys. Uh, As we've done some research, there's something called the SHINE method, where it talks about sleep, hormonal uh, support, infections, nutrition, and exercise. It's that acronym that internally we can take care of Nadia in that way. Um, As we advance uh, in really implementing these steps for her life, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly helpful Um, At the same exact time, both of the doctors that we've seen have asked us a question, the same exact question, unbeknownst to us. And the question is this, why are you in Portland? Uh, They refer to that because of the reality of the cold, wet, and rainy with nine months uh, out of the year. And they've said that this is the worst climate for anyone who suffers from fibro to be in. Fibro patients need to be consistently warm and dry Uh, for a better long-term health. So in light of all of this, I have some sad news to share with you. Um, Nadia and I are going to be moving back to Southern California in July. Um, It is a a sad, sad thing. Um, But let me just kind of take you a little bit on the journey of where we've been. Um, January of 2016 was probably one of the greatest months of my life. Um, we had gone through a church planting internship uh, with Chuck. And if you guys know Chuck, he has his infamous phone calls where I called him up and he's like, hey, man, we've got an opportunity for you here in Sherwood. And uh, we trusted God and we moved up here. And I think from the moment Nadia and I landed, we thought this was where we were going to be forever. But in the midst of what's going on with Nadia's health, the reality of that and looking at her long-term health, um, we've decided to make this decision. So here's where, here's where we are emotionally. I think Nadia and I are really heartbroken deep down because we absolutely love this church. For those of you who know us, we, we kind of live, breathe, and eat Colossae Sherwood. That's kind of who we are as God's people. When we arrived and we were, <laughs> I joke with Bucky that we were paired up on that blind date. Like we just thought this was, this was it. But then as we've seen Nadia decline in health, um, we've, we've had to make that decision. So we're heartbroken. But at the same exact time, I think we feel a lot of relief. I don't know if you guys have dealt with any sort of autoimmune or um, an illness that just 
is constant and consistent. When you find some sort of diagnosis that's helpful, um, it can really bring relief to our hearts. Uh, and we know that moving forward, Lord willing, in a few years, we're hoping that God, that God would bring healing to Nadia's body. But that we don't know. But here's what I do know to be true. Um, it has been the privilege of my life to be your pastor. It has been the privilege of my life to be your pastor. I can't imagine the reality that's kind of before Nadia and I, but if there's one thing I want you guys to know is that we're, we're not leaving because of any other reason except Nadia's health. Um, we're not leaving because of infidelity. We're not leaving because we hate each other. We're not leaving because we got kicked out of ministry. Like We're leaving because first and foremost, I'm her pastor. First and foremost, before God, I have a covenant relationship to her, which says this. There's going to be a day that I stand before God and say, God, here's how I took care of your girl. And he's going to say, yes, God, how, do I, how, do I, how did you take care of my church? But he's going to ask that second. What he's going to ask first is, how did you take care of my daughter? So simply put, there's just a lot of unknowns for us. There's a lot of hardness and a, and a reality that's facing us that we don't even know. But here's one thing I know to be true. Is that as God's people, he leads in his timing. This is not my church. This has never been my church. And if you've been here long enough, I hope you know that this is not my church. I hope you've seen that in my leadership. I hope you've seen that in how I've loved you I think of First Thessalonians 2. I saw this in Ben and Lacey's house a while back on the wall as we walk into your house. And I saw that, and I felt like for the first time that verse actually made sense to me. It was First Thessalonians 2.8 where, where Paul's like, man, I'm just so excited to share the gospel with you, but I'm also excited to share my life with you. And I think Nadia and I have just been privileged to share our life with, uh, with you guys. Love you guys. Oh. I just think this is this is a this is a curveball that I don't think Nadia and I saw coming, and this is one uh, that I don't know how to hit up here. Um, we can do ministry anywhere, but Nadia can't live anywhere, and so because of that, I have to take care of my girl, and I have to take care of my family. But the beautiful thing is that we're a part of an interdependent community. Colossae Sherwood will go on. Colossae Sherwood will continue. On a, on a practical note, here's a couple of the details that are taking place. All the community leaders are on board. We shared this with them last week, and they are on board. Brian, our Colossae Kids Director, is on board. Kale and John, both the worship leaders at our church, are on board. And they're committed to making the vision of Colossae Sherwood a reality in long term. So there's some practicals that are going to be happening soon. Um, Chuck Bomar, the lead pastor, really the founder of Colossae Church as a whole, he will be stepping in starting June 4th to be the teaching pastor here. Uh, Colossae Tigard is going to be shifting to two gatherings 
8.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. And we are going to shift June 4th to a 9.30 a.m. slot because whoever's teaching in Tigard is also going to be teaching here. May 28th will be my last Sunday preaching, and we'll be here throughout the month of June to transition in every way we can. But because Colossae Church is an interdependent church, this thing's not going to fail. If anything, my hope is that we keep the vision of God central. We keep it central. We're, we're a part of something greater than we can see. Yeah, we're a part of Colossae Sherwood, which is a part of Colossae Church, which is a part of the global church. We are a part of this. And Jesus is at work. And here's my plea with you. As long as you are breathing, as long as God gives you breath, would you give of yourself for the mission of God? Would you lay down your life for the mission of God? In this opportunity, I have a chance to lay down my life for the sake of my wife. And God is not going to be upset with me in doing so. I have this reality that we have to figure out life for us, but the mission of God advances. And my plea with you is that you would continue to see that this is all a part of God's sovereign work in his beautiful story that you and I are a part of. You can think back into your life when there was a curveball that was thrown that you didn't expect, but you can look back on that situation and watch God work, right? You can see it. So here's what this means. Right now, we can't see it, but we have a God who can see it. And because he sees it, there's hope and there's confidence in our hearts. I can't say this enough, guys, to be a 31-year-old lead teaching pastor. I don't know what Chuck was thinking when he hired me. But I cannot say enough how much fun it has been to be your pastor. And I love you guys more than you know. Um, but we're going we're gonna to sing and we're going to respond in worship because here's the reality. In the midst of the storm, God is faithful over the storm, right? So then that means we sing louder and we sing more joyfully and we give more and we take communion joyfully. Why? Because the mission of God is what matters. At the end of the day, you're not going to remember my name. Why? Because Jesus' name has to be remembered. That's what matters most. And that's what I want to live my life for and give it for. If you guys have any questions about this process, feel free to come up and chat with me or Tony about it. Um, we are here. There's, there's nothing to hide. And so if you have any questions about kind of what that means for us, we would love to just chat with you. Um, but we're going to sing and we're going to respond because God is good in the midst of hard all the time. He's good in the midst of hard. I love you guys. I'm thankful for the time that we've had. And you're not getting rid of me yet, so you've got two months. Hang in there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day that you have made. As your word says, we want to rejoice and be glad in it. And God, it's easy to rejoice because you're good. We have scripture to speak to that again and again and again, that you are faithful and you are good. So I pray for my friends now, and I pray just for this time of worship. 
Now, God, we sing joyfully, proclaim your name. Why? Because it's about you. Jesus, we need you today. We need you to lead this church. We need you to lead Nadia and I in the midst of what's coming for us. And at the same exact time, God, we can rest in your goodness and know that you're good. And we're going to respond to you like you're good now. In Jesus' name.